0: Sometimes I feel like a journey through Scripture can be a bit like a roller coaster ride. The highs and lows, the sudden drops and turns. I definitely feel that way with the story of Abraham, technically still Abram, but soon to be renamed Abraham. No sooner has he exercised great faith, exemplary faith. Faith worthy of our very careful imitation. See your notes from last week to know exactly how we want to imitate that. This week we see him falter and fail. We see his faith tested and tried, and we see Abram fail this test. Now, before we tisk tisk or shake our heads at Abram, if we're honest, It's true of all of us when our faith is tried and tested. And if you feel like your faith hasn't been tried or tested, are you paying attention? If if for some reason you haven't had your faith tried or tested yet, it's coming. I guarantee it for two big reasons. Number one, we live in a fallen world. Life under the curse guarantees that things will be hard. We'll encounter all manner of difficult situations, heartaches and heartbreaks, disease, death. Our faith will certainly be put to the test in a fallen world. But it will also be put to the test directly by the Lord himself. When the potter takes his lump of clay into his hands... And molds it and shapes it. He will eventually bake it. He will eventually put it into the fire. He does this many times over in the process of our sanctification. Where he conforms us to the image of Jesus. Ultimately for his glory. That's ultimately what's going on here. This is ultimately about his glory. The apostle Peter understood this. He, who himself had a severe test of his faith, failed miserably. But fortunately, God retests. Abraham would be granted a retest, a makeup test, if you will. Peter certainly had additional Tests of his faith. Opportunities many times where his faith was retested. And so when Peter was writing about salvation. When he was writing about the joy and the hope of his and our salvation. Here's what he had to say in his first letter. In this, in your salvation, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, Peter failed his great test of his faith. Abram failed some of his faith tests. We will fail some of ours But all of this is ultimately for his glory. And scandalously enough, it's also for our blessing as well. Let's dig into the passage we have at hand from Genesis 12. Stand if you're able for the reading of these verses. Chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But... The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all. That he had. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh God, once again, give us the help that we need. Help us to sort through all of this. Help us to understand this passage. Help us to understand very clearly what it is that you are doing. In this passage. Change our lives with such knowledge. Draw us closer to Jesus. Make us more dependent on him. More rejoicing in him for what he has done for us. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So first on the agenda, let's just get the basics down of what's going on here. It starts verse 10 with... A famine. With God's people, it often starts with a famine. Famine in the land of Canaan is not all that unusual. Rainfall there fluctuates greatly, has huge impacts on the crops and the harvests. Now, some scholars, Matthew Henry's one of them, speculate that this famine might even be a judgment of God on the idolatrous, wicked. Canaanites. We, don't, we don't know that for sure. We don't know whether or not this famine would have gotten their attention. But it definitely got Abram's attention. Here he is now in this new land. And he's hungry. And he knows no one there is going to lift a finger to help him out during his time of need. So he makes a decision to relocate. Leaving Canaan. Heading down to Egypt, Egypt, whose Nile River floods regularly and irrigates the valley, so Egypt's a pretty natural place to go in search of food, and things get real interesting when they get there, and he tells Sarai, oh yeah, here's the plan, by the way, you're my sister now so that I don't lose my neck. You're so beautiful, they're going to kill me so they can have you, and sure enough, they get there, and they all say, oh look how beautiful she is. Now, The commentators have a lot of discussion about her beauty. How is it that Sarai, who's now 65 years old, how is it that a 65-year-old woman can be so strikingly beautiful? Is it perhaps a special gift of the Lord? Calvin has a very specific idea, overly blunt like he can be at times. He says, I know why. I know why she's so beautiful, because, quote, nothing more debilitates females than frequent childbirth. So Sarai being barren is the secret to her youthful appearance. That's just Calvin's opinion. Don't shoot the messenger. Whatever the reason, her beauty is recognized. And Abe's fear isn't too far off the wall. We see something very similar happen much later in Scripture. Uh, Not at the hands of pagan Egyptians, but at the hands of the man after God's own heart. When he has a man murdered so that he can have his wife. So Abram has his wife tell a little white lie for him. It is, after all, a partial truth. Sarai technically is his half-sister. They have the same father, just different mothers. So yes, it is kind of true that Sarai is his sister, but it's completely true that Abram's intent is to deceive. And therefore, a partial truth is a total lie. And it creates a big, huge mess. Pharaoh, believing Sarai to be an available woman, takes her into his house to be presumably another one of his wives, plural God of course is highly displeased by all of this, afflicts Pharaoh and his house with plagues we'll see that again too won't we one way or the other Pharaoh finds out why the plagues came somehow he's able to put two and two together he says Abram why why have you done this to me, get out you look there at the second half of verse 19 it is simply four hebrew words that he utters screams here wife take go and abram says nothing in response he, he's got nothing to say he knows he's wrong so he grabs sarai he gets the heck out of dodge and so we've got quite a mess here don't we This whole episode raises several questions. Questions that need answers. The first couple of questions have to do with going to Egypt itself. Was this a good move? Was this a good idea? Was relocating to Egypt what God wanted Abram to do? And the best answer is, we're not sure. Moses The author here doesn't tell us explicitly, so we're left to make our judgment from context clues, from from the larger context of Scripture. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what the commentators try to do in their commentaries. So a, a quick note here about commentators and commentaries. They can be very funny things. The four questions that I really had as I went through this passage, they all had. They all had these same questions. They all addressed them. And their answers were all over the place. I'm using six commentaries for uh, our series through Genesis, which is a few more than normal, but it is Genesis after all. Um, And none of my four questions did all the commentators agree on they disagreed, and sometimes the disagreement was wide. And these are solid commentaries, right? I, 75% of commentaries out there are just garbage. They're liberal garbage. They, they start from a premise of uh, God's word isn't true. They would never uh, say that it's inerrant, infallible, inspired, or authoritative. right? They, they, they disbelieve the miracles, the virgin birth, the resurrection. So I don't waste my time on those. These are good, solid, orthodox commentaries that all disagree with each other. So we need to be cautious here, okay? Uh, as we explore these questions and their possible answers, we need to do so with a lot of humility. One might even be tempted to argue, well, should we even try to answer these questions at all if the Bible doesn't explicitly say one way or another? If God wanted us to know definitively that Egypt, yes, was a good idea or no, it was a bad idea, then he would have told us. And, and, and that's True. But just because things are left a little murky here, a little cloudy here, doesn't mean I think that we shouldn't necessarily explore them. Because which of our lives isn't also a bit murky and cloudy at times? And we're left having to make decisions where the Bible doesn't explicitly say, do this or do that. We, we, we rarely find the billboard on the side of the highway that says, here's the answer to this choice that you need to make. We very often have to deduce, and we have to work from the biblical principles that we glean. What we found out to be true from about God from Scripture, what we found out to be true about ourselves. And so, for that reason, I think it is worthwhile. We, we've got decisions to make that Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us. Right? Uh, which college should I attend? Well, the Bible doesn't say. Who should I marry? Bible doesn't tell you that either. Will we? Which house should I buy or should I rent? Uh, you know, he rarely gives us the specific answer. We're very off, often left where we've got to take the next step. We've got to make the choice ourselves based on what we know from Scripture. So, was going to Egypt okay or was that a bad thing? Again, the commentators are all over the place. One commentator said, oh, there's nothing wrong at all with going to Egypt. It's simply recognizing Egypt as God's provision for food. No food in Canaan. There's food over here. We can go over here and get food. It was just good, practical, common sense, which a lot of the time I'm down with that. Because very often we can make discerning the Lord's will far too much of a mystical process where we're looking for signs, we're waiting for that peaceful, easy feeling, Sometimes we'll inquire of the Lord, we'll ask for his direction, and it'll just be crickets. And we're left to take a step in one direction or the other. That that is, after all, why it's called faith. Sometimes we have to, to lay it before the Lord and then take the next step that seems best to us. So going to Egypt could be a good thing, but do you notice something missing from this episode with Abram, missing from what I just described to you? Where is the inquiring of the Lord? Where is the asking? Where is the laying it before the Lord? Where is Where is the saying, now, Lord, of course we're ultimately trusting in you. Lord, we know ultimately it's you who's going to provide for us. Lord, do you want to provide for us here in Canaan? Or, Lord, do you want to provide for us down in Egypt? I don't see or hear Abram saying or doing any of those things. And that's where, for me, this begins to come under much more of the probably a bad idea category. Going down to Egypt, and now we've got the full breadth of Scripture at our benefit, too. We can read all across Scripture and see that, oh, you know what? Going down to Egypt, that's always a bad idea. Going down to Egypt is always presented as the alternative to trusting God. Egypt's where I can go to get help if I'm not going to trust the Lord. So we've got that benefit too. So here's the first little takeaway for you. When your faith is being tested, when my faith is being tested, and it will. In that test, are you turning to the Lord? Or are you just striking out on your own? Second related question here about going down to Egypt is what sojourn means in verse 10. Again, the commentators do not agree. Some say, oh yes, sojourn here. This is definitely a temporary relocating. Right? He's still got Canaan and the promise of the land in the back of his mind. He's definitely got a view to going back. He's just going here temporarily simply for food. Other commentators say, oh no. No, he's given up on Canaan. This is a permanent move. He's he's abandoning God's promise. He's rejecting God's plan. And frankly, it's hard to know definitively which of these it is. The answer seems connected to the next question. What motivated Abram to lie and to have Sarai lie on his behalf about her being his Now, I will confess to you, I've only ever considered one possibility of motive here. The only way that I've ever read this in the past is that Abram was just being a selfish jerk. I've always assumed that his self-interest is what motivated him. His self-protection, saving his own hide at the expense of his wife's honor, no less. Oh, dear wife of mine, please lie so I don't die. So he's gone from this man of great faith in one moment to a man of great fear and selfishness in the next. We can all make that quick and sudden turn. Be warned. Especially in those moments where we're riding the the wave of having stepped out on faith, of having been obedient in one moment, be careful, take heed, lest you fall. I've always read this as Abe just, you know, being being a selfish jerk, afraid, fearing for his own safety. Uh, It was Calvin, interestingly enough, who has quite a different take here. Calvin doesn't think Abram going to Egypt was him forsaking the promise of the land. He doesn't think that Abram lying about Sarai being his sister was a selfish act at all. Calvin argues that Abe still very much had the land promise in view and that his lie was his attempt to protect the promise. He knew that he was right smack dab in the middle of that promise, that that he had to live a long enough life to have an offspring to inherit the land, to become this great nation. Right? He, he saw the threat. He saw the possibility of being killed because of his beautiful wife. And so for the sake of the promise, Calvin argues, he lies about his wife now. Calvin is not for a minute suggesting that Abram is innocent in this. The question in his mind isn't if he's sinning. No, the question in his mind is how is Abram sinning here? He's sinning, he's culpable, but how exactly? Calvin just argues that Abram had a good end in view the preservation of God's promise. He just didn't have the best means of going about it. He sees the clear and present danger to the promise. Nothing wrong with that. But he turns to self instead of God. He looks to his own resources instead of to God, to his word for instruction and guidance. So instead of his sin being one of self-interest, Calvin argues, his sin is one of self-importance. See, Abram felt like everything was riding on him. It was up to him to keep God's promise afloat, which leads him to sin. It leads him to sin just as much as his selfishness could have led to sin on the other hand. See, Abram thinks he's so important. He's so vital. He's so needed by God that he is the key to God's success or Failure, that he has the ability somehow to ensure God's plan and promise come to fruition. But what he does, of course, has the exact opposite effect. It puts the plan and the promise in tremendous jeopardy. The, the promise now could so quickly unravel. No promised offspring. No land. Certainly certainly, no blessing to all the nations. Remember, that's the part of the promise too. Abram, in you, I'm going to bless all the nations. I don't think the Egyptians necessarily felt blessed by these plagues. What a mess. So takeaway number two, when your faith is tested and it will be, do you turn inward, self-interested, self-protecting, What do I need to do to look out for number one? How do I make sure me, myself, and I come out okay on the other side of this thing? Do you turn inward? Or do you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you think, all right, if this is meant to be, it's up to me. One of those choices will get your name dragged through the mud. Self-interested, selfish jerk. The other option will very often get you applauded. Oh, look how capable he is. Look at her go. Both are just as sinful and dangerous. One last question that's up in the air is whether or not when Pharaoh took Sarai into his house to be another one of his wives. Did he, in fact, consummate that marriage relationship? The Bible doesn't say. It would be tragic if that were the case. Yes or no, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tend to be too prudish, too reluctant to share PG-13 and sometimes R-rated details if necessary. But none are given here. When this happens again, and when it happens again, by the way, in chapter 20, Abram's going to do Abraham at that time. We'll do this exact same thing again. When it happens then, the Bible explicitly tells us that Abimelech did not know Sarah in that way. Here we just don't know. It remains an unanswered question. But... We're going to end this morning not with unanswered questions about Abram and Sarai, but with great certainties about our great God. See, when we don't get the answers in Scripture that we're looking for, we might just be asking the wrong questions. Maybe the uncertainties are supposed to direct us and point us toward the things that are more certain. Maybe that's where we should spend the bulk of our time. Not on these things that are left up in the air, but on things that are absolutely and abundantly clear. And we've definitely got a few of those in this passage. They're not about Abram and Sarai. They're about the Lord. We see very clearly in all of this two things. The Lord's protection and his blessing. Abram in no way needs to feel it is his job to protect God's promises. God is more than capable. We see very clearly, even through this episode, his promises are invincible. He's not going to allow anything or anyone to derail or thwart them. He's not going to allow evil from outside to thwart them. He's not even going to allow evil from inside of his own people to... Abram, fearful, faithless, self-important, self-interested. God won't allow any of it to thwart his promise. He uses all the power at his disposal to get his people out of the jams that they're in, even if they created them themselves. And he gets them out of those jams, not first and foremost for their sake, But for the sake of his great name, for the sake of the promise that his great name is attached to. And so he calls down plagues on people who are getting in the way of his promise. He causes the heart of Pharaoh to turn against Abram and cast him out of Egypt to get his rear end back where it's supposed to be. Plagues, deportation are at the Lord's disposal. He'll use them as he sees fit as he protects his people and his promises. The other thing that we see so abundantly clear here is the Lord's blessing, his capital B blessing. Did you notice that through this episode, through this sinful episode, where Abram brings himself and his wife and the Egyptians and most importantly God's promise into great danger and jeopardy, Through all of this, Abram is richly blessed. I mean, he becomes filthy, stinking rich through the process. Verse 16. In the process of taking Sarai as his new wife, Pharaoh pays the dowry, in essence, the bride price, to Abram. Sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants, camels It is extreme opulence The liberal scholars say Oh, camels didn't exist then There weren't camels Well, the real scholars worth their salt Dug and dug and dug and found out Well, guess what? They're just beginning to come on the scene there And only the filthy, stinking rich have them It's such an extravagance All of this happened as a result of Abram's sin. And he got to keep all of it. Even when Pharaoh threw him out, he sent him with the stuff. You might say, well, that's not not God blessing Abram. Pharaoh did that. Well, keep reading. Read about episode number two with Abraham. Read about episode number three that involves Abraham's son, Isaac, who does the same thing that daddy did. The end of all three sinful, lying episodes has the liar getting richer in the process at the Lord's hand. And we are so very uncomfortable with that. That's not right. What in the world? Uh, the, these liars don't deserve to be blessed like this. They're, if anything, they deserve to lose everything they have. That's what liars deserve. It doesn't seem right to get so blessed while being so sinful. But let me ask you. If you need to not be presently sinful in order to be blessed by God, then who can ever be blessed? We don't ever get blessed because we deserve to be blessed. We are blessed because it is in God's character to be gracious. It is who God is to give that which is unmerited and undeserved. So I hope this does make you a little uneasy. I hope it makes you squirm. I hope it doesn't seem right to you. Because guess what? It's just like the grace of our salvation. Our salvation ought to make us feel uneasy like this. We ought to struggle with the fact that it just doesn't seem right. That we should be so blessed while being so sinful. And if your salvation doesn't make you squirm like that, you don't understand what salvation is. Now, of course, God's prerogative to freely and richly bless like this isn't cheap it isn't free it is very costly and it of course would come at the expense of one who like Abram was called to leave not just a country but a throne One who was called to leave, not just his daddy, but the eternal fellowship of the Holy Trinity. It comes at the expense of one who would not lie about who he was like Abram did, but would tell the truth about who he was, though it cost him his life. The very life that purchased for you and for me blessings we do not deserve while being so Sinful. And so that leads us to the table. Let me put on this other microphone. I forgot. Are we on test check? Lapel. Testing one, two, three, test, test. Test check one, two. If this doesn't work, I'll grab a handheld. like, if this is going to go well at all, there's going to have to be divine intervention. Something supernatural is going to have to happen in order for this test to be passed. Here's the divine intervention for the next testing of all of our faiths. Here's where he shows up in His grace to strengthen, to bolster our faith where it is lagging and lacking. We we're tempted to turn inward, to turn to self-interest, or we we're tempted to pull up our bootstraps and try to do it our own. Here is divine, supernatural grace ready to remind us again in a fresh the gospel promises, that Jesus has done it all. Finished. As we say, that he was capable for that initial moment of salvation, he's capable for every test and trial that we have along the way. Even if they come because of our own sinfulness. Even if it's a jam that we got ourselves into. No, you've got to be reading this and lovely book. It's absolutely incredible How it expands all of these things. Here's the divine intervention for your and for my next test of our faith. Father, would you take it? Would you use it? Would you grant to us the faith that we need to believe that Jesus is somehow supernaturally present in this moment by faith? And he's going to show up. Not because there's something special about that little wafer or that juice. But because there's something very special about him. Because, Father, you think we're pretty special to you. That's why you went to the great expense that you did to claim us as your own. And you're not done with us yet. But you will see us through to the finish line. And so show up supernaturally now this morning to get us further down the road, to carry us even closer to the finish line. We know you'll carry us all the way. Strengthen our faith. Renew our wills, Help us in our next test. We ask in Jesus.